Hope everybody had a great Thanksgiving. Had the chance to go back to Ohio for a couple days. So that was fun. Got a puppy coming back on Friday. Uh, I do already see that when I, Lord willing, have kids, everything the puppy does, I'm basically Googling to make sure, like, she just sneezed. Does that mean she's dying type of thing? So I Google. So come that way with the puppy. I'm sure with a baby it'll be much worse. I invite you to turn to Isaiah chapter 7. I did pass out a little handout that I made. I uh, don't have PowerPoint this morning, but actually I think that in some ways will be even more helpful. At least that's my hope, um, just to give some, some background. There, there's a lot of sort of historical context to the passage, um, but hopefully it'll all uh, be clear. Isaiah chapter 7, and yeah, there are some extras uh, on, on the back table if anybody needs one, and um, or just awkwardly crouch over sit over the person who's next to you and and read theirs, but uh, would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this day. I thank you for this season. I thank you for Thanksgiving that we had this week, celebrating that time with family and friends. Lord, I pray for our service today. Lord, I I pray for the women who were at at the brunch yesterday, hearing just wonderful things about how well attended that was. And Lord, with anything that we do, be it church or Sunday school or the Sunday night study or special events like yesterday, Lord, let, let we take things from your word that extend far beyond that day, that week, that prepare us for a lifetime of following you and serving you. Heavenly Father, I pray that you bless the message today. I pray that it be faithful to your word. I pray that it be what we need to hear today. Lord, I pray for this season of Advent as we prepare for Christmas. Lord, I pray for communion that we will be partaking in later this morning, that all of our hearts would be prepared for that. In Jesus' name, amen. In the Gospel of Matthew, Mary and Joseph are engaged to be married. They've never consummated the relationship, but Mary finds herself to be pregnant. Joseph doesn't want to bring shame upon Mary, and so he prepares to divorce her quietly. An angel appeared to Joseph, and the angel tells him to to stay with Mary because the child that she's carrying has been conceived of the Holy Spirit. The angel says in Matthew 121, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The Gospel of Matthew summarizes that exchange by quoting a prophecy from the book of Isaiah. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. While Isaiah's quote in the Gospel of Matthew is familiar in its connection to Jesus, The original prophecy was given more than seven centuries before at perhaps the most tumultuous time in the history of Israel. The original context of the Emmanuel prophecy is often overlooked, I think, because it's kind of a complicated story. But it's also a fascinating story that involves conquering empires, civil war, 
judgment, and betrayal. So today and over the next following three Sundays, as we celebrate the season of Advent and preparation for Christmas, we'll be looking at the Emmanuel prophecy in the Old Testament context. And today is part one, a sign rejected. At the outset, I should say that while these are passages which deal with things like conquest and war, I realize that those aren't necessarily what we think of as being really Christmassy themes. But these are also hopeful passages which point to God's faithfulness. So we come to Isaiah 7, our passage this morning. And I would certainly encourage you today, since we don't have slides, to to read along with me. And as I've already said, the, the sheet that I handed out, I think it's important to start with some historical background. The passage can get, I think, very confusing if you don't know what's going on or you don't know who, who the players are in this story. So I think some introductory information will be helpful. First thing, timeline. These events happen around the year 735 B.C. Just to give some perspective, that's the last time Illinois won the Big Ten. <laughs> I actually wasn't going to say that joke, but the only reason I wanted to make sure people could hear me, so it sounds like it's working. There are four nations which are mentioned in this passage, Judah, Israel, Syria, and Assyria. First thing to understand, Israel is not the good guy in this story. For most of Israel's history... And I don't know if the average person actually knows this, but for most of Israel's history, Israel is not a divided or is not a united country. It's divided. Think of it like this. We live in the United States of America. In the 1860s, 11 states seceded from the Union. We had the Union and the Confederacy. Well, similarly to how we have the United States, Israel was a collection of territories divided among tribes. Each tribe had its own land. The tribes were descendants of a man named Jacob. And something that I think is important to understand in this passage is that the Israelite territories were not always united. The great king of Israel was David. His story is pretty familiar. He wrote many of the Psalms. His son was Solomon. Solomon's son was a man named Rehoboam. And that's where things really start to get bad for Israel. Because Rehoboam is eventually overthrown by a man named Jeroboam. And it's at that point that Israel is no longer a united Israel. The northern and southern tribes split. And they will never again reunite. If it helps, think of it as the divided states of Israel. Again, I know it can be a little bit confusing. So you have two kingdoms, north and south. The northern kingdom is called Israel. The southern kingdom is called Judah. The southern kingdom, Judah, is home to Jerusalem. The royal line which leads to Christ, think about the genealogy at the beginning of Matthew, that line, those are the kings of Judah. The southern kingdom is called Judah, named after Jacob's son Judah, 
through whose family Jesus comes into the world. None of this is saying that the southern kingdom was perfect or righteous. In fact, the first six chapters of the book of Isaiah are basically talking about all of the sins in the southern kingdom of Judah. So they were not perfect. The grace bestowed upon them was the same grace that's bestowed upon every believer in the gospel. It's the undeserved free gift that God offers. So the southern kingdom is Judah. To the north you have Israel. But here's, I think, the area that really gets confusing. Because while the southern kingdom is called Judah, the southern kingdom is really the true Israel. It's the true chosen people of God who have the promises of God. While Judah is called Judah because of the tribe of Judah, the northern kingdom in Israel is often called Ephraim, named after another son of Jacob, or actually of Joseph, named Ephraim. And I point that out because in this passage, the northern kingdom at times is referred to as Ephraim. Think of it as how places like the United Kingdom and Great Britain refer to the same place, or Holland and the Netherlands refer to the same place. The northern kingdom of Israel is the same place as Ephraim. So that's two of the players in this story, Judah and Israel. And just to reiterate, it is Judah who has the promise of God, even though they're sinful too. Two more kingdoms in this story, Syria and Assyria. And obviously, that can get confusing because the names sound very similar, but they're different. Assyria at the time was the regional superpower, and they posed a threat to all the surrounding nations in the Middle East. Syria and Israel were joined together in an alliance against Assyria. They had attempted in our passage to get Judah to join them, to join in their alliance to fight against Assyria, or at least to defend against Assyria. At one point, Israel and Syria actually wanted to stage a coup to overthrow the king of Judah and install their own puppet king who would do what they wanted. So these are serious 8th century BC geopolitical issues. And with that, we come to the beginning of our passage this morning. And in the first verse, Isaiah will introduce Judah, Syria, and Israel. And again, I would encourage you to read along in your Bible this morning. Verse 1. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. Oftentimes in the Old Testament, people are introduced in conjunction with who their father is. This passage is no different. With Ahaz, it tells us that he's the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah. If you look at the genealogy in the Gospel of Matthew, all three of those men are in the line that leads to Christ. We have Ahaz listed at the beginning of the passage. He's listed first because ultimately this passage revolves around the kingdom of Judah, of which Ahaz is the king. A few more things about Ahaz. Even though he's the king of Judah... 
which is the kingdom who retains God's promises, that does not mean that Ahaz is a good king or a good man. And in fact, he's neither of those things. Talking of Ahaz, 2 Kings 16.2 says, He did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God, as his father David had done. That passage tells us that Ahaz sacrificed one of his own sons. And he also took it upon himself to go outside the bounds of the Old Testament ritual and laws and practice in pagan religious rituals. Second Chronicles chapter 28 tells us that Ahaz made metal images of pagan deities to worship. So he's not a good king. He does not honor God. Next up, Rezin, king of Syria. Syria is probably listed next because they were probably the, the sort of ringleader in the Syria-Israel alliance. Israel listed last. The king of Israel at the time was a man named Pekah. So three nations, three kings. And this passage tells us in verse 1 that Syria and Israel came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it. Keep in mind that it is Assyria who is the regional threat. And so you might be asking yourself a logical question. If Assyria is the threat, then why are Syria and Israel going to war with Judah? I briefly touched on this earlier, but the issue was that Israel and Syria had wanted Judah to join them in their anti-Assyrian alliance. Verse 2. When the house of David, that's just another way of referring to Judah, when the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. This verse refers to the southern kingdom of Judah. They find out, again, that Syria has this alliance with Ephraim, the northern kingdom. And so we have Israelites fighting against Israelites. And it's very disheartening for Judah to learn that these two nations are against them. Eventually, Syria and Israel will attack Judah, and they'll hit some of the territories outside of Jerusalem with devastating results. Quoting from 2 Chronicles 28, verses 5 and 6, The Lord his God gave him into the hands of the king of Syria, who defeated him and took captive a great number of his people and brought them to Damascus. He was also given into the hand of the king of Israel, who struck him with a great force. For Pekah, the son of Remaliah, killed 120,000 from Judah in one day, all of them men of valor. And then again from 2 Chronicles 28, 8. The men of Israel took captive 200,000 of their relatives, women, sons, and daughters. They also took much spoil from them and brought the spoil to Samaria. Samaria was the capital of the northern kingdom. So Judah has over 120,000 casualties and over 200,000 enslaved. Merry Christmas. Imagine... If you're a citizen in Judah, 
and you're a citizen at the time, and someone, imagine that you're somebody who, who knows what's going on in the world. A difficult time. You're basically under the threat of all the nations who are surrounding you. You could join your fellow Israelites in the northern kingdom and band together with them in Syria. But then you might still have to battle Assyria, an empire who could be ruthless in their conquests. Or perhaps you could try to appease the Assyrians, maybe pay them off for protection. Which choice is right? We'll get to that in a little bit. Verse 3, the prophet Isaiah comes into the story for the first time, and along with Isaiah will meet his son. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jeshub your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. The son is significant in this passage. In Hebrew, the name Shear Jeshub means a remnant will return. Why does that matter? Because you have a corrupt king ruling in a corrupt kingdom. I've already mentioned this, but the early chapters of Isaiah largely revolve around Judah's sin. And there will be judgment for that sin. And in 735 B.C., they find themselves in a losing battle with the nations who are around them. They've already suffered tremendous losses, but Ahaz is given a, a promise. A remnant will return. Even with as dark as the times were, the nation would not totally be destroyed. Even within our passage, Israel and Syria attempt to overtake Jerusalem, but can't. Now, we don't know if Ahaz really understood that at the time or appreciated that at the time. But it is significant to the passage that God does give this promise. Verse 4, Isaiah speaks, continues, or he starts to speak and says, And say to him, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint. Now this prophecy is given to a specific person at a specific time. But I think that really is pretty good wisdom for all of us in times of difficulty. Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint. Because we have a God who is faithful, a God who is in control, and a God who is good. And yet we so often forget that. It's so easy to get stressed and anxious. How much... Would our lives be different in the difficult seasons when facing the unknowns if we simply trusted in God, believed in God? It's so easy to say that we trust God, but so many times it's so much harder in practice. It's so much easier to say the right answer but to actually be believing it and living out your own faith and trust is so much harder. God is faithful. He's faithful to his promises. He's 
faithful that he will never leave you nor forsake you. And no matter how big or small the challenges in your life are today, God loves you and he cares regardless of what we face. God cares about his world. Verse 4 continues. After Isaiah has called Ahaz to trusting in the Lord, Isaiah continues by talking about the imminent destruction that will be awaiting Syria and Israel. Where he says, because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands, he, he calls them two smoldering stumps. He'll elaborate on that more in our passage. But what he's beginning to communicate is that for Israel and Syria, their days are numbered. Continuing in the passage, at the fierce anger of Rezin in, in Syria and the son of Remaliah. Isaiah is addressing two combatants who have gone to war with Judah. He continues in verse 5. Again, if you have your Bible, please read along with me. Verse 5. Because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah has devised evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. A lot could be said there. It's basically one long prophecy. Even though Judah has all sorts of issues with sin and with the sinfulness of their king, they're still God's chosen people. And so there's a severe penalty for Israel and Syria for attacking the southern kingdom of Judah. For the northern kingdom, again, also in our passage known as Ephraim, there's a severe penalty for them attacking their fellow Jews. They have all these plans against Judah. And the Lord says, it shall not stand and it shall not come to pass. This is the promise that Ahaz is given. It's the Lord speaking through his prophet Isaiah. The text says that within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And similar doom will befall Syria. So what Ahaz is told about his enemies. And those things do come to pass. Assyria would go on to conquer Syria. And in 722 B.C., the northern kingdom, Israel, is conquered and they lose the land. I spoke earlier about the tough situation that Judah faced when they had the option of joining an alliance with Syria and Israel. That's option A. They didn't choose that option. 
They could have tried to appease Assyria. That's ultimately what Ahaz chose to do. Looking at this story recorded in 2 Kings chapter 16, beginning in verse 5. Then Rezin, king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, came up to wage war on Jerusalem, and they besieged Ahaz, but could not conquer him. So again, they're, they're trying to bring down Jerusalem, but they do not prevail. And so Ahaz begs Assyria for help, 2 Kings 16.7. So Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, saying, I am your servant and your son. Come up and rescue me from the hand of the king of Syria and from the hand of the king of Israel who are attacking me. He's going to a pagan enemy nation and begging them for help. And he will pay off the Assyrians. But where does he get the money for that? Verses 8 and 9 of 2 Kings 16. Ahaz also took the silver and gold that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasures of the king's house and sent a present to the king of Assyria. And the king of Assyria listened to him. The king of Assyria marched up against Damascus and took it, carrying its people captive to Kir, and he killed Rezin. Ahaz takes the gold and silver that's in the temple, and he uses that to pay the Assyrians. And the second king's passage uh, talks about how the Assyrians kill the king of Syria. I won't read the entire section, but in the next scene, Ahaz meets the king of Judah. And he continues to be reverential to the Assyrians, just to, to give a sense of it. 2 Kings 16, 10, 11. When King Ahaz went to Damascus to meet Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, he saw the altar that was at Damascus. So he sees this religious altar. And King Ahaz sent to Uriah, the priest, a model of the altar and its pattern exact in all its details. And Uriah the priest built the altar in accordance with all that King Ahaz had sent from Damascus. So Uriah the priest made it before King Ahaz arrived from Damascus. So he sees these religious symbols of this pagan nation in Assyria, and he's sending the exact specifications to his own priest to make those in Jerusalem. And again, if you were to continue reading in 2 Kings 16, you'd see that Ahaz does everything he can to show allegiance to the Assyrians. He practices their religious rituals. A terrible sin. So what was the right option? Joining Syria and Israel? Or joining Assyria? It's a bit of a trick question, because the correct option was trusting in the Lord. Instead, Ahaz let fear draw him into sin. He let his lack of confidence in the Lord lead him to bowing down to other deities. He put his own trust in his abilities to work out the situation and not into God's providence. He trusted a a man the king of Assyria, for his protection, 
rather than trusting the Lord. Israel and Syria might have looked like giants to Judah, but their days were numbered. And we see in this passage, and I think about the birth story of Christ that we see in Matthew chapters 1 and 2, we see it in that chapter 2, that God is sovereign over the nations of the world. Ahaz had the promise of God. He had the divine kingdom. And yet he sold off the temple items for what felt like security. The issue in this passage is that for Ahaz, his first hope was not ultimately in the Lord. When he had such a great opportunity to trust in God. Where is your dependence? Where is your hope? It's easy to judge Judah. It's easy to say Ahaz should have had more faith. He should have. Not defending him. But it is interesting to consider his situation. All the nations around him have reason to go to war with him. The superpower is taking up territory. And he does what we so often do in a, in a crisis. He takes matters into his own hands. He doesn't trust the Lord. He doesn't trust God's ways or providence. For him, for Ahaz, for his life, his reign, his nation, all these things hung in the balance. I think of the thousand situations that we face in our lives all the time where it can be so easy to distrust God. Situations that are so much smaller in comparison to what Ahaz was facing. But what's our excuse? We have God's promises. Yet, we so oftentimes do whatever we can to feel a sense of control about our own lives. We have God's word. But it so often doesn't bring us the comfort that it should. <coughs> what God says will happen, will happen. That's true both of good and bad things. In this passage, we see God's faithfulness to his word. He told of the destruction which would befall Syria and Israel. And it happened because God is true to his word. But what does God say in his word that you struggle to believe? At the end of our passage, Isaiah continues to speak to Ahaz. But they're not ultimately Isaiah's words. He's just the mouthpiece for God. It's the Lord's words. And in verse 10 he says, Again the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. Ahaz is told to ask for a sign from God. Signs are often used in the Bible to point to the miraculous works and power of God. And where the text says as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven, the point is that Ahaz can basically ask for any sign that he wants. An incredible offer from the Lord. The Lord is saying that he will reveal his glory and power to Ahaz on Ahaz's own terms. 
what would you ask for? Maybe it would be to see a relative who's passed away raised to life. Maybe it would be to see heaven. Maybe it would be to be instantly healed of something that's inflicting you or someone you love. Maybe it would be to see a change in the weather and it suddenly become 85 degrees and sunny. What sign would bolster your faith? For Ahaz, the offer is meaningless because he's already thrown in his lot with Assyria. And that's where his trust lies. In verse 12, Ahaz says, I will not ask. He rejects the sign that the Lord has offered. Next week, we'll see the sign that the Lord gives. Would you pray with me?